Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to continue on the Marx Volume 2 train here with, this is part three, but we're covering the second half of part two of the book titled The Turnover of Capital. So before jumping into that, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineau. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and idea to make ideas to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, and you'll see my videos I release at least once a week. Uh, that's been my routine. Uh, or you can go check out my channel or just podcast site anywhere, and you'll see that I have hundreds of videos there that might or listening episodes that you'll be able to hopefully get a lot from. Uh, if you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends who knows they might get a kick out of it. Or uh, you can help me out mon monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. And yeah, without further ado, let's continue here with the second half of part two, the turnover of capital. So here I'm continuing from chapter 12, titled The Working Period. Uh, the last one obviously finished on chapter 11. So let's imagine two industries. Let's say cotton spinning on the one hand and car manufacturing on the other. Now let's assume that the proportions between fixed capital and circulating capital and between constant capital a little more generally and variable capital are the same in both. So between them, the proportions uh, in how the capital is distributed is the same. And that they have the same length of the working days producing the same ratio between necessary and surplus labor. So eight hours of the day is spent working, for example, four hours of which is the necessary labor, four hours of which is what ends up being extracted from the, uh, from the worker. So then the, that's, those are the conditions here to think about these two industries. Now let's say that it takes a week in order for cotton, through the cotton spinning, to earn back the money of the cost that went into the cotton labor uh, or so both variable and constant capital, it takes a week to cover those costs. But let's say it takes 12 weeks with a car. So it'll take 12 weeks before you can sell the car. Now, I have no idea if that's how long it'll actually take to make a car, but let's just assume. So in the case of the cotton industry, the cotton capitalist is going to be able to uh, earn back their money on a weekly basis at the end of every week. Whereas in the car manufacturing business, It'll only happen every 12 weeks. So at the beginning of these operations, at the beginning of the cotton spinning operation and at the beginning of the car spinning operation, even though the proportions between their circulating or their variable and fixed capital and constant capital are the same, the car manufacturer, because it takes 12 times longer, 12 weeks versus one week, to make the car that'll earn them the money back, that capitalist is going to need to have 12 times the amount uh, of capital to spend on variable capital than the, uh, than the cotton spinner or the cotton manufacturing capitalist because the car capitalist is going to need to pay wages for 12 weeks before they're actually going to have uh, be able to make their money back. So before they even start, they're going to need to have the money in order to pay the people that are, that are going to work for them and to pay for all the machinery and all that. So this presents certain risks for the car manufacturer because they need to go through 12 consecutive weeks smoothly, hopefully there are no interruptions, for them to produce that car, 
that they will then be able to sell. Whereas with the cotton manufacturer, if there happens to be uh, an issue one day, it's a much, it's a significantly uh, reduced risk to the overall enterprise because you can just pick it up the next day. I don't know, you hire people for overtime for a few hours to make up for that. Whereas with the car, if you don't reach your deadline, then you're just going to be running on fumes after that. That is, let's say instead of 12 weeks to make the car, it takes 16 weeks. So you're going to have to cover a month of uh, costs to labor that you don't have the money for, and then you're going to get you're going to get screwed at the end. So this these are the working periods between the cotton spinning and between the car manufacturing. The working period is the amount of time needed to produce the product that will then be sold to cover the costs. In the case of the cotton, as we said, it's a week. In the case of the car, it's 12 weeks. Now, this is a situation that is quite novel in the course of human history, in the course of production and any kind of economic system, if we can call previous systems economic, just to, you know, to entertain me for that by using that term. Because in the case of the car manufacturer, there is a kind of a, a hope and a prayer that they are going to actually go through with their, uh, their production and they will then make their money back at the end of the 12 weeks. There's a little bit of speculation implied here and just a pure hope that everything will go according to plan. But of course, that is just simply not the case, not only in the capitalist mode of production, in anyone. There's just, it's just unpredictable. It is impossible to be able to account for all the different variables, let alone the capitalist one or the capitalist mode of production or economic system where there are just so many varying variables when we start to consider global trade, when we start to consider market uh, and, and stock, uh, the ways that market and the, and, and the stocks will affect uh, the price of commodities and, and the price of labor and, and so on. Now, with increased investments, with increased technological knowledge, maybe increased knowledge of efficiency of, of human, uh, human labor, the working periods should become shorter over the course of time. So as new uh, cotton spinning machines are introduced, then it might take instead of a week, it might take six days or five days or, or so on. In the case of the car with new machinery being introduced, more efficient uh, ways to organize labor, it'll go from 12 weeks to 11 weeks and 10 weeks and so on. Or you have in the case of like Fordism, you have uh, just a complete overhaul of the way that production is occurring and how people are being compensated as well that completely overhauls how production occurs at all. So in the working period, it's important to consider production time. So all working time is production time, but the reverse isn't true. Not all uh, production time is working time. So I mentioned this in the last episode that in the case of wine, when the wine is just sitting in a barrel, it isn't uh, nothing. There is no working time existing on it. Whereas, uh, when it is being worked upon by labor, that is the working time. So in both cases, we fall under the camp of production time, but with the, with the wine sitting, in the, sitting idle in the barrel, it, is just, it just belongs to idle time. And there, uh, capitalists want to minimize, like I said last time, that idle time. Similarly, we have circulation time. And if you're like, oh, this is really repetitive as to what we covered last week, uh, it is because the book is very repetitive, but it's important to reestablish these points before we move into the next part. 
So insofar uh, as turnover time is comprised of production time and circulation time, we have to you know, consider circulation time in a little more detail. So this can be affected by distance between the place and production, uh, the place of production and the place of sale. So if you are distributing goods overseas or across continents, that time is going to be increased. And then if there are new means of, um, I don't know, uh, transport introduced like planes, then that time will be reduced. Now, in first glance, it might appear as though the improvement of these means of transportation and communication might result in the general uh, democratization of the distribution of goods. So if new means of transportation are introduced that allow uh, transportation to happen almost anywhere, where you can transport goods anywhere quite easily, then it would seem as though more goods can travel to more uh, more um, out-of-the-way places, places that are in more desolate areas of the globe. But that's not actually what occurred. In fact, what happened was um, it intensified, these new means of transportation and communication, intensified the concentration of wealth in certain areas. So, for example, areas along like a railway or coastal cities or uh, cities that are, like in the case of plains, maybe aren't in mountainous regions that are difficult to, to fly to. And we see this on full display too. In a, there's, a, there's a book, I can't remember what it's called. Um, I want to say the author's name is Robbins, but you don't, I think Richard Robbins maybe, but anyways, I don't quote me on this. But uh, in this book, the author, I think it was a man, he, he was describing how the introduction of railways, although it connected people of different backgrounds, which might, like in this case of distribution of, of goods, uh, might appear to result in the general uh, equalization of people, uh, democratization of, of goods and, and their distribution, like in the case of railways with different people from different backgrounds coming together, what actually happened was that these people started to only adopt the dominant form of uh, of, of speech, of, of a language. So he uses the example of France and how France was connected via various railway systems. And what that did was it homogenized the French population to be very much like Paris. Uh, that is people in the countryside who often spoke with such strongly varying dialects from other people in other villages who couldn't really talk to one another began to adopt the same language, this Parisian French because of railways. So railways, instead of actually uh, expanding the possibilities for differing outlooks of the world actually uh, encourage the concentration of specific, most likely uh, dominant forms of of knowledge or of of ways of living that are going to be determined down class lines or or racial lines or what have you. So circulation time is not only going to be comprised of like the transportation. It's also going to be the time that it takes for the object to actually be sold, if it has to go and sit on a shelf, and however long it'll take to take that new money prime that the capitalist has earned to put back into production so that they can uh, expand their, their uh, industry. So how then does circulation affect valorization, affect the accumulation of value? So if we imagine a business that produces its product in nine weeks, they make a they make a, a car in nine weeks, let's say, 
and it takes three weeks to sell and convert the money into uh, into a new into a new product that they can use in the means of production, then the whole turnover time should be 12 weeks because it's nine in production time plus three for circulation time to transport it, to sell it, to use that new money to then add that to production or to use that new money to buy the commodities in terms of the means of production or labor. Now let's say it costs the operation $100 a week. The capitalist is only going to be working uh, productively for nine weeks in which they're making their thing through uh, variable labor that they're going to be able to cover with the cost, essentially the selling of the product. But they have to factor in the added cost of the extra three weeks. They, however much that'll cost, let's, we're still assuming it's $100 for transport, for uh, for uh, putting the stuff up for sale and, and other costs. So total in the week uh, or in the year, let's let's imagine, or not the not the year, but in twelve weeks, it's then twelve hundred dollars because it's a hundred dollars a week. But if we imagine this from the first cycle, let's say a capitalist just fell down from uh, from the sky, had uh, twelve hundred dollars, and they said, okay, 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 we have to make. I want to make cars, uh, and so they have the the money to put down like a hundred dollars the first week, and they're they're going to put that down every week, assuming that the infrastructure is already there. They aren't going to buy fixed capital. Uh, you know, they're just going to be buying uh, variable capital uh, or uh, variable and um, constant circulating capital in the form of raw materials and other uh, stuff that's going to be expended as it goes through the, the production process. Let's assume then that after nine weeks, the capitalist essentially just has to sit on their hands because they're waiting for that sale to happen at the end of the year, uh, at the end of the 12 weeks. I don't know why I keep, why I keep saying that. At the end of the 12 weeks, so the three extra weeks, they are waiting for them to earn their money back, which they could then put into the industry again. But like we mentioned in the last episode, there are going to be costs within the circulation time that they, the capitalist is not going to be allowed to uh, add to the cost of the product because then they are going to be undercut by their competitors. So they're only going to have to put in, uh, in terms of the cost of the product, the labor that went into it in the production time and including like transport time as well, which we talked about last week. So at the end of that, they hope to make more than the money they put forward, right? Through their surplus value. So they're going to have to make more than the 1200 it costs them in order to actually cover the cost of that whole 12 week period. So let's say they make back $1,300. Now they're going to start this next 12 week cycle not with 1200 but with 1300 So then the same thing starts again. It costs them $100 a week in order to keep it going. So they go week one, week two, week three, all the way up to week nine, they will have spent $900, and they still need to, again, wait three weeks in order to earn their money back, in order to earn uh, another $1,300. But instead of having to wait the three weeks, because the capitalist after the first week earned an extra $100 on top of their initial $1,200, they only need to wait two weeks instead of the three. So after two weeks, they can say, okay, I'm still sitting on this $100 that I have from the last profit cycle, from the last turnover cycle. I can put this down now. We can start operation early. So they can then do that. And they're starting a week early. So that means at the end of week eight of the next cycle, they will have done the necessary nine weeks in order to earn, uh, to produce another car. 
But let's back up a little bit here. So they start uh, a week early in the second cycle because it only takes, uh, because they still have this $100 left over, they only need to work two weeks in order for the cycle to start, uh, to start again, because they have that $100, they can put that down and keep things going right away. At the end of that first week, they will have then made another $1,300, because that will coincide with the end of that second 12-week period. So now they have just spent $100 on an early week and have then just earned $1,200. So you can see where this is going. At the With every week, it can start a little bit earlier. And if you imagine that after seven weeks, or after 10 weeks, however many weeks, then it starts to overlap. And so production can occur earlier and earlier and earlier with the production process occurring, or with the cycle of the turnover period. Now, there are very many different ways to think about this and Marx um, will go into those in, in a moment but he just reiterates quickly first that this is why Adam Smith and other political economists before him didn't understand how value actually came about it doesn't come about in the circulation fear, sphere in the circulation of capital but rather with um, real variable capital that is applied to wages which implies labor power and it is through this these successive turnover periods where they can start sooner every single week and more money is being earned that uh, a hoard of money where money can be uh, accumulated. Now we use the term accumulated here loosely because how Marx thinks about it uh, and how other thinkers like Rosa Luxemburg will take it up, think about it. They think about it really specifically to capital. Capital is what is accumulated. Money is what is hoarded. So it is with this process that money is necessarily going to be hoarded. More money is going to come in and in and in until it is applied, applied again into production to then quicken the turnover cycle. And then it forms and it's accumulated and the cycle can continue faster and faster every time or earlier and earlier every time. Okay, so now he considers in, in great detail the distinction and with lots of numbers, the difference between what happens with different proportions in the turnover cycle. So either work and circulation time are equal or work time is greater or circulation time is greater. So for example, in the 12 week cycle we just talked about, if nine weeks is in production time and then three weeks is in circulation time, so they aren't equal, in that case working time is more. If it were six and six, then they're equal. Or if it were three weeks production versus nine weeks circulation, that would be that production is less than circulation time. So I can't go into details here with what he gives us because the, the math is off the charts. I couldn't possibly convey it to you in any meaningful way. So instead, I'm going to relay to you the points that he extracts from it with just a, like a little bit of an explanation to try to make it make sense to you. Uh, so in a sense, we have to take him at his word. Now, we have to add a little asterisk here because in the footnote, in one of the footnotes, Engels says that Marx isn't really right about his math in some of these cases. But, and, and this does really come to the detriment of Marx in this case. But the point that Engels stresses here that we should take from Marx, and this is kind of Marx's overarching point, is that money plays, uh, or money capital, the role that money capital plays is obviously instrumental to the entire process, but it is not the source of valorization as 
the earlier political economists believed. So in cases where working time and circulation time are equal, assuming that the cost will remain the same throughout, like $100 a week, then no capital is going to be freed up. So what will happen is um, you'll have, this is assuming, of course, we're dealing with simple reproduction. We are dealing with a situation in which, or we don't even need to think about it this way. Let's say that it's the exact same example. $600 is spent in production, 600 in circulation. That means that $600 is where surplus value can be extracted from. So let's say at the end of that, you can only extract, assuming you aren't going to be able to double uh, the cost uh, that, that it costs you, um, you aren't going to be able to cover all of your costs. But even let's say, let's say you were able to double it, that would be a surplus value rate of 100% because you cost you $600 in terms of variable capital to the workers, but you took out 600 from them. So that means it's a exploitation rate, a surplus value rate of 100%. That means at the end of the 12 weeks, when you're about to start again, you only make $1,200 because it was $600 in production time that you doubled because of the 100% exploitation. If it was, um, I don't know, if it was 50% exploitation, it would only be $900. But because it's 100%, it's an extra $600. Or sorry, if it's 50%, it's an extra $300 making $900. If it's 100%, it's an extra $600 making $1,200. So in the case of 100% exploitation, you aren't going to be able to make more money because you just are going to make $1,200 and that's what it's going to cost you for the next 12 weeks to get things going again. Now, in a very mysterious way, he considers the possibility that circulation time is greater than production time, to which you might say, well, if you're not going to make money that way. If circulation time is greater than the amount of time spent working, you're going to be losing money, assuming it's $100 every week regardless of, of cost. But Marx says that, uh, in fact or in fact, according to him, you're actually going to earn money. Money is going to be created out of this that can be used as, as profit, as productive capital. It's going to be set free when the circulation period is greater without forming a simple multiple or when work period is greater than circulation period, which is obvious. If, if work period is greater than the circulation period, of course, of course, you're going to be making uh, profit. But he says that if the circulation period is higher without forming a simple multiple, then you're going to earn profit. So this would be a case in which uh, perhaps three weeks is spent on, um, or not, uh, or four weeks. Does that work? Let's say five weeks. Let's say five weeks. Five weeks is spent on uh, production or on the working time or production, and seven weeks is spent on circulation. According to his math here, that means you're going to be making money. Capital is going to be set free for it to be then used back into production. That is because the relationship between five weeks to seven weeks is not a simple multiple. Whereas in the case of three and nine, it is, or two and 10, it is. Another one that would apparently work is one and 11, but that makes absolutely no sense at all. And it, it feels like a total miscalculation. So in any case, let's take this to be, I would love it if someone happened to have a very strong knowledge of this idea. 
I don't know if there is some mathematical wizardry going on that I just don't understand. Um, but it, it just totally, it doesn't make any sense to me. Now, in the interest of, I guess, uh, clarity, let me actually read the words that he says. So, however, in all cases where the circulation period is greater than the working period without forming a simple multiple of it, or uh, the working period is greater than the circulation period, obviously this is the case, a part of the overall fluid capital is always periodically set free at the close of each working period. So if anyone can make sense of that, uh, and I know that it's partly my job to figure this out, I just couldn't decipher this. I would love to hear about it, so please let me know. Now, in any case, I'm, I'm going to get off of that now. So the most likely case is where the ca worst capital is set free, and that will most likely happen where production uh, exceeds circulation because it's in the capitalist's interest to minimize circulation time. They want to sell their product immediately. They don't want to waste any time in circulation because who does? Now, the capitalist doesn't want production to stop. Naturally, they want it to always keep going. So let's say it costs $100 a week for costs for everything, uh, and they have $1,000. And let's say circuit um, the circulation time is two weeks. So 800 uh, after eight weeks, that'll be the end of the production period. And then 200 for the next two weeks for the circulation time. So the 200 anticipated for circulation time is then used on production so that production doesn't stop. So this money is going to be allocated in such a way as to just go right back into uh, production. And here we are left with the same situation as described earlier, where every week they're going to earn a little bit more, and then to the point that circulation time won't even play a factor anymore, because they will be earning enough to always keep production going over circulation time, uh, during circulation time, so production never needs to stop. Now what happens, hypothetically, if there are changes in the price of raw materials that, you know, this $100 a week might be going towards, and instead... Uh, the raw materials have come down in price. Instead, it costs $50 a week instead of 100 So if the cost is halved, it's reduced by half, that would mean that less money will be circulating in the market because less money is going to be need, to need to be given up to these commodities, these raw materials, that can keep production going, which might have the added effect that there's going to be not enough money at the end for their products that they're actually selling, but that's uh, a little bit tricky to think about. Or there might be a doubling of the cost of raw materials that'll, that'll, that'll double the cost, in which case then there will be more demand for capital to cover higher costs because more money is going to be needed to cover these, net, these constant costs uh, or, or could be variable costs as well uh, in the production sphere. Now, these uh, effects or these outcomes or these situations will only have significant effects on on the market if they are the result of uh, changes that are going to be eternal. Like if there's an, a change in the way, a development in the way that um, organization or labor is organized, or if there's a technological development uh, that everyone has access to, then it's going to have major effects on the market and just the access of goods for all people. And this is part of the impetus behind the you know, trickle-down economics effect uh, idea as more, uh, as capitalism progresses, there's just going to be more access to more goods among more people. Hence, there's just going to be more wealth distributed to uh, more people. 
But likewise, it doesn't just go in one direction. If the market is all connected in such a way as it is now, any kind of uh, hindrance in it is going to greatly affect everything. If there's a housing crisis in the United States, it's going to affect Portugal, Italy, uh, Spain, you know, it's going to Greece, it's going to affect all of these other countries all across the world because of the interconnected nature of the improved means of transportation and communication that will affect the, uh, affect the entire globe. Now, if there are changes that are produced uh, because of a, like dealing with the price of raw materials, as I just presented, uh, because of uh, natural disasters, for example, it won't perhaps have lasting changes on the economy just because those things can be recuperated, they can be fixed. Uh, and with that, then things will head back to equilibrium as they were. Whereas with technological developments that will last forever, the equilibrium itself will change. So in all of this, turnover can only happen uh, if things are sold. And if they aren't sold, the capitalist is not going to have money to cover variable costs or the cost of constant circulating capital that they need to constantly be paying for. Because this is assuming, of course, that whenever the product is sold, it'll cover the cost of the fixed capital because the fixed capital machines or whatever directly transferred their product over and you only need to pay for them 10, however many years down the line, however many years it'll take for that thing to wear out. Whereas you have to be paying the people every day and if you aren't paying them, they're going to die and you're not going to have a labor force. So not only is it necessary for the capitalists to sell their products to the market for them to earn the money that they could then pay to the workers, it is necessary for capitalists to be producing so that there are products in the, in the market that the workers are going to be able to buy for their own subsistence. Whereas uh, in other modes of production, if we can call pre-capitalist pre modes of production, People are not, people have ostensibly would have the means to provide for themselves. Whereas in the capitalist mode of production, there is a removal between one's own subsistence and, uh, and their own capacities. So they need to go through the mediating, mediating factor of earning money, which they could then spend in the market so that they could live. And now here we get to another extremely complicated moment where he says that the frequency of the turnover period affects the, uh, that happens annually. So let's say it's a 10 week period uh, annually, that'll happen 5.2 times, right? Uh, or what would be an easier way? Let's say the turnover period is two weeks, then you're going to have 26 turnovers in the year. So we can compare that to an industry in which uh, it's only one turnover period in the year. So let's say, you have 26 versus one. One industry takes 52 weeks to actually sell their product and to earn their money back. For another, another industry, it happens once every two weeks, happens 26 times a year. So he says that in this case, and I had so much difficulty with this part. He says that in this case, and please forgive me, but I'm gonna change the ratios here to make our lives a little easier. Let's say a year is 50 weeks. Hypothetically, a year is 50 weeks. So you have one industry that does a turnover once a year, and you have another industry that does it every five weeks. So for one, it's just once a year, they're going to turn everything over. For the other one, it's 10 times a year. Now, in the case of 10 times a year in this one industry, or I should say now, imagine if the everything is equal between them, the ratio between variable and fixed capital, variable and constant capital, the amount of money they're going to make at the end of the day. So 
at the end of five weeks, that first industry makes $100. Just for easy math, $100. Uh, that is the cost that goes into it, that, that goes into uh, variable capital that is spent assuming things in fixed capital have already been bought. So at the end of five weeks, $100. That means at the end of the year, $1,000 is spent here. Now let's say, assume the same thing of uh, the other industry that does it once a year. They also make $1,000 once at the end of the year. Whereas in the 10 times one, they make $100 every five weeks instead of uh, once a year. Now to me, these seem like the exact same thing. It seems like the exact same thing, uh, except there's going to be more risk presented to the ones that have to wait the whole year because this is hoping that the payment is going to pay off or else they're uh, going to be deep in the hole, they're going to have bills to pay that they aren't going to be able to pay and so on. But Marx says that the rate of exploitation is different between these two industries, where in the case of the one that turns over 10 times a year, the rate of exploitation is going to be a thousand percent. And the reason that that is, is because at the end of the year, a thousand dollars has been earned and he divides that by the amount paid, which is, uh, which is a hundred. So, and this is how he does his math. He has a thousand as the numerator, a hundred as the denominator, and then does that math there to say that, okay, and the rate of exploitation is therefore a thousand. Now he compares that to the other industry that does it once a year, which is $1,000 in cost over $1,000 of exploitation, of, of, of cost in that whole period. So that means then that it's a ratio of one to one, 100%. He, he calls it 100% here versus the 1,000 to 100 in terms of cost. Now, the reason I have trouble wrapping my head around that is because he's comparing two different variables. In one case, he's comparing weeks to the end product of a year. So comparing 100 is the cost per week versus the 1,000 at the end of the year. He's comparing weeks to years in that case. And in the other case, he's comparing year to year. And I find that, I find that hard to swallow. And I, I have a difficult time understanding how it dovetails with his argument generally. And this is another thing. If someone happens to know what the significance of this is, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Because in my brain, all I want to do is say, it's the same thing, because you're just, you're just using the wrong variables. You have to have common variables here to say that, hey, no, it's not $100 a week, it's $1,000 a year, and you end up with 100% uh, in both cases, 1,000 to 1,000 and 1,000 to 1,000, not 100 to 1,000 versus 1,000 to 1,000. Now, where there is something to be said in how I'm grasping this between the two examples is that in the case where it happens once or 10 times a year, sorry, where it happens 10 times a year, the capitalist is just taking the money from the market to cover it uh, because, you know, you might not have, uh, might not need to have so much money in reserve to cover these costs. Whereas in the one who's doing it once a year, they're going to need to have a lot of capital on hand in order to cover those costs for the entire year, covering essentially $100 every five weeks for uh, all the employees and other costs. But in any case, he, this is what he gives us, so we'll just put that out there. Uh, and I want to qualify that not only does uh, the market need to have the necessary supplies for the means of subsistence for the uh, workers, 
they need to have the supplies for the means of subsistence for workers who are always suffering because as is in the uh, capitalist form of production or of, um, in, uh, under capitalism, capitalists are always trying to reduce the cost of labor to bring those wages down while maximizing the cost of things they're selling. That's just how it goes. That's the name of the game. So they're not only, the market doesn't only need to provide for workers things that they'll need. They need to provide for suffering workers. They need to provide enough for people who are on the on the brink of death, essentially, who are getting the minimum in order for them to uh, to be able to keep working. So once the turnover period has gone out, has happened a certain number of times, uh, whatever, however many times this might be, eventually the capitalist is going to have acquired a lot of money in the form of a hoard. Uh, because they aren't necessarily always going to be able to invest it back into their business. Because if they did, then they would overproduce. Uh, and there might not be a supply for that. And then it'll, it will have been useless. Or there may not be a demand for that. And it will have been useless. So they may just then sit on money in the form of a hoard. And here we get the possibility for something like credit. Where they can then uh, lend out money to other capitalists to start their business. So they can then have that initial capital to buy their fixed capital to buy uh, buildings, machinery, and whatnot with a little extra, and they can start their turnover cycles, and, and then the same thing will happen to them, and so on. So surplus value taken out of the turnover cycle, or turnover cycles, can assume one of two forms, or can comply to one of two forms. There's simple reproduction, in which case money is just put back in the system to keep it going at the rate it's going at, so to cover the cost of the wear and tear of machines, to cover uh, cost of wages and, and any other costs. And then the rest, in terms of like profit, is just taken as revenue used by the capitalists to buy sports cars and yachts and whatever. Or it can be used in a situation of accumulation or expanded reproduction, where some of those extra profits after the cost of everything else is put back into the system in order or back into production in order to expand that production or make it more efficient. But again, this presents some risks because that can only go so far before you start to have more means than there is demand. So you start to be able to make more than you necessarily need to. So in either case, but let's make it easy. Let's think about simple reproduction here. Even though money isn't going to be spent to expand and then to make that expansion grow exponentially, we are still confronted with, a, with an issue. And that issue is how do we actually account for uh, the way that value is now represented in more money? Because if money only mirrors what commodities are for sale, there is like a, a, a relationship between the two. And we get this in Adam Smith and Ricardo. There needs to be a connection between the two. The amount of circulating gold needs to comply with the amount of circulating commodities, how do we actually account for growth at all? It would just seem as though there would just be an equilibrium. Things would just stay stagnant, but things seem to grow. And money, despite the fact that less value is going into it as uh, more of it comes into the market through inflation, as you know, more efficient means of production are introduced, less value is actually communicated to the products being made, because now it's the same value, but spread over more products that are made more efficiently. How do we actually account for the added amount of money that represents value? How do we account for it entering 
uh, entering the market, entering the arena? Well, the simple answer is that uh, in simple reproduction, it just comes from capitalists, where some capitalists are going to be buying things to uh, in the market. They're buying their yachts and their cars, and that's throwing money into the market, while there are others taking more out of it who are um, essentially buying or selling things, sorry, to the market and then taking their money out and hoarding it. And the idea, especially among the older political economists, was that this will just tend to equilibrium. Things just work out harmoniously as though uh, there is no, um, again, we're here, we're only thinking about simple reproduction. We're not thinking about the expansion of industry to the point that it just valorizes itself and uh, exponentially. We are thinking of simple reproduction where money isn't put back to expand industry. It'll tend to equilibrium. So if more commodities enter the scene, there will be more of a demand for gold. Then a new mine is discovered or uh, mined, and then more gold enters the scene and the problem solved. But in the case of accumulation or expanded reproduction, we can't really apply the same logic, though, can we? Well, to Marx, we kind of can. It, it, it will come from the same place, this added value, this added money, the transfer of hoarded money into circulating money that has been uh, accumulating for a long time will just enter the market. And it will expand on a very, uh, at a very high rate. And this also explains how capitalism is a system that ushers in the possibility for credit, as I mentioned earlier, where a certain capitalist will have a hoard of money that they will be able to lend out on interest, and they will earn interest back on it. But the problem remains, how do we account for the lowering of value among the things produced, given the um, reduction of the need of laborers, how do we, uh, and the more efficient technology being used, how do we account for the extra circulation of commodities? How do we account for the extra circulation of money, even though value on the whole is going down, if value is really understood in terms of the amount of labor power needed for uh, to buy an object, and then how much labor that object is ostensibly going to stand in for, that it'll save you at the end of the day, which is what people want. They want to reduce the amount of time they have to work in order for them to enjoy other things. And I don't think, you know, throughout even the course of this book, uh, Marx gives a very uh, clear answer about this. He, you know, he just reverts to the same things because it, I don't even, the fact that he was able to do as much as he did uh, in terms of deciphering capitalist accumulation is, is remarkable, but did he go all the way? Perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, but in any case, this brings us to the end of part two. And then next week, we're going to start on part three titled the reproduction and circulation of the total social capital. So yeah, if you listen this far, thanks a lot. Uh, if there's anything I put out a lot of questions out there. So if you have answers to them, please let me know. If there's anything else I screwed up, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. And yeah, catch you next time. Take care.